Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. In this episode, we will look at the first chapter, which is titled The Power of Thought. But just before that, uh, a little recap of the previous chapter for those who missed it. In the previous chapter, we went through the introduction of the book and the author's preface, and we learned that this book is, is a tale of experiences that Napoleon Hill, the author, has learned from several American industrialists and presidents and congressmen um, in the early 19, in the early 20th century, which is between 1900s to 1950s. This book was written in 1937. So it was just about the time that America was, uh, came out of the Great Depression, was into uh, a severely economic, a severely progressive time in terms of the economy. In this book, uh, in this particular chapter, The Power of Thought, Napoleon Hill details the, the tales of two people and also gives us a little bit of a taste of what is to come in the next chapter, which is incredibly important, encapsulated in a letter written to him by a, a student of his. The first part of this chapter, which is titled The Power of Thought, is titled The Man Who Thought, in quotes, his way into partnership with Thomas Edison. Edison, as we all know, is a, a very important and notable scientist. This particular chapter talks about a burning desire in people who want to achieve something. And it's important to know the different, note the differentiation between desire and a burning desire. Right? A burning desire is something that is kept uh, a lit um, throughout tough times and desire can just be gone when you know the cold hits your face the rain hits your head when opportunities slip away but a burning desire always carries on and a burning desire was true for a man named Edwin C. Barnes who discovered how true it is that men really do think and grow rich as is the title of the book he had a burning desire to work with as a business associate of the great Edison he, however, he did not have any money in order to, tra to travel to Orange, New Jersey, uh, where, Ed where Edison lived at that time. But these difficulties were sufficient, the author writes, to have discouraged the majority of men from making any attempt to carry out the desire. But this was no ordinary desire for Edison, for uh, Barnes, sorry. He was so determined to find a way to carry out his desire that he decided to travel by blind baggage. Uh, this means travel in a freight train that is usually used to transport goods rather than in a passenger train. And for the Indian audience, it's, uh, it's, it's very similar to how a lot of people travel in passenger trains, but hide here and there, whether in compartments or uh, in, 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 in the toilet and get off between stations so that people aren't very suspicious. Uh, and this is very common in most uh, trains. I've seen it myself. He eventually reached Orange, New Jersey, and um, in there, when he reached, he announced, he presented himself to Edison at his laboratory and announced that he had come to go into business with the inventor. In speaking of the first meeting between Barnes and Edison, years later, the scientist said, he stood there before me looking like an ordinary tramp, but there was something in the expression of his face which conveyed the impression that he was determined to get what he had come after. I had learned from years of experience with men that when a man really desires a thing so deeply that he's willing to stake his entire future on a single turn of the wheel in order to get it, he is sure to win. 
I gave him the opportunity he asked for because I saw he had made up his mind to stand by until he succeeded. Subsequent events proved that no mistake was made. And remember, this was said by a great scientist. It was the thought that counted, said Napoleon Hill. If the significance of the statement could be conveyed to every person who reads it, there would be no need for the remainder of this book. And this is the remain. This is the crux of this entire chapter. And as Hill uh, notes, it is the crux of the entire book. Now, months later, uh, as the months went by, Edison, uh, sorry, Barnes was continuously worked in Edison's laboratory as a business associate, but he wasn't really making an impact more than more so than the rest of his associates. But months went by, apparently nothing happened to bring the coveted goal which Barnes had set up in his mind as a definite major purpose. But something important was happening in Barnes's mind, says the author. He was constantly intensifying his desire to become the business associate of Edison. Psychologists, writes Hill, have said it correctly, that when one is truly ready for a thing, it puts it in, it puts in its appearance. Barnes was ready for a business association with Edison. Moreover, he was determined to remain ready until he got that which he was seeking. He said to himself, ah, well, what's the use? I guess I'll change my mind and try for a salesman's job. But he did say, I came here to go into business with Edison and I'll accomplish this. And if it takes the remainder of my life, he meant it. What a different story men would have to tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose. Now, now, months went by, and again, he did not have any uh, impact more so than the rest, but he did have that determination and unrelenting determination. Um, and one fine day, Mr. Edison had just perfected a new office device known at that time as the Edison Dictating Machine, now known, or in 1937, known as the Ediphone. Uh, most of the salesmen weren't really excited about it, but uh, Barnes was no ordinary salesman. One night, he crawled quietly hidden in the queer machine looking, uh, looking at it, which interested no one but Barnes and the inventor. Barnes knew who could, he could sell the Ediphone. He suggested this to Edison and promptly got his chance. In fact, he did so successfully that Edison gave him a contract to distribute and market it all over the nation. Later, a slogan became popular, made by Edison and installed by Barnes. The business alliance has been in operation for more than 30 years, in 1937, of course, out of the bonds, out of it, Barnes has made himself rich in money, but he has done something infinitely greater. He has proved that one may really think and grow rich. Now, this is an important lesson um, that we must sort of imbibe in, in the art of persistence, uh, and especially in the art of persistence and in the pursuit of money or in the pursuit of wealth rather than simple money. Um, but the, the key takeaway that the author has presented from this particular lesson is that to know you need to know what you want and the determination, and you need to have the determination to stand by the desire until you realize it. Another important lesson is in this chapter is presented in a story of R.U. Darby. Um, and R.U. Darby was a very important life insurance salesman uh, who, who had us who believe it or not had a severe impact in American industrialization and the ability to sell life insurance to a lot of prospective clients all throughout the country. Uh, 
there are two stories in this chapter on Derby. One is titled Three Feet from Gold. And this was at a time of the gold rush, which was, I think, in the, in the mid to late 19th century, somewhere around the 1840s to um, the 1870s. Uh, it, it was, it happened in, in it, it occurred in California where several people chanced upon gold and this led to a severe uh, rush of people moving into California with the sole pursuit of digging and finding gold ores and eventually extract, extracting gold and selling it at a high price. Um, an uncle of Aryu Dhabi was caught by the gold fever in the gold rush and went west to dig and grow rich think in Groridge to dig in Groridge. He had never heard, he had never heard that more gold has been mined from the brains of men than has ever been taken from the earth. Now he went there and he was rewarded by the discovery of a shining ore, but he did not have the missionary to extract it. Therefore, he went back to his home in Williamsburg, Maryland, told his relatives and a few neighbor of the strike of the gold that he had uh, struck. They got together money, needed to buy machinery, and they went back to work the mine. The first part of the ore was, ore was mined and shipped to a smelter. The returns proved that they had one of the richest mines in all of Colorado. A few more cars or parts of that ore would clear their debt and would come and, and, and the rest would recruit them as profits. But eventually they hit a snag. They, they, they chanced upon the ore that they found did not was not part of a larger uh, car or or ore, and in fact was uh, quite small. And this did not really help them clear the debts, and certainly did not uh, allow them to seek any profits. Finally, they decided to quit. They sold the machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. But the junk man, he called a mining engineer. He did not simply sell the equipment. Um, he called a mining engineer to look at the mine and do some calculating. The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners were not familiar with fault lines. Its calculations showed that the vein would be found just three feet from where the Darbys had stopped drilling. This is exactly where it was found. The junk man took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. Most of the money which went into the machinery was procured through the efforts of R.U. Darby, who was then a very young man. The money came from his relatives and neighbors because of the faith in him. He paid back every dollar of it, although he was years in doing so. Long afterward, Mr. Darby spoke to the author Napoleon Hill and, and, and recounted the experiences of how he and his family was three feet from gold. Remembering their loss a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold, Darby profited by the experience in his chosen work by the simple method of saying to himself, and I quote, I stopped three feet from gold, but I will never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. He owes this stickability, the author says, stickability to the lessons he learned from his quitability in the gold mining business. Before success in any man's life, he is sure to meet with much temporary defeat and perhaps some failure. When defeat overtakes a man, the author says, the easiest and most logical thing to do is quit. That is what the majority of men do. More than 500 of the most successful men in this country has ever known told the author Napoleon Hill that greatest success came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. Failure is a trickster with a keen sense of irony and cunning. 
Next lesson also involves the tale of the life of Mr. Darby. It's, it's titled A 50 Cent Lesson in Persistence. And this was uh, written at a time when uh, the relations between uh, the whites and the blacks in America wasn't the, the, the healthiest as, as, as popular culture has, has told us. So this involves a tad bit of historical racism. Uh, and so just wanted to mention that before we get into um, the story. And Ayu Dabi was a, a white man and so, so was his family. And at that time, the relations, as I mentioned, weren't the best, so to speak. But this lesson, five cents lesson in persistence, taught him that no does not necessarily mean, mean no. And this was a lesson that he picked up in the University of Hard Knocks, which is uh, a colloquial term that Americans use to describe the, the university of life or a regular university where you learn on the job or learn on the go. One afternoon, Darby was helping his uncle grind wheat in an old fashioned mill. The uncle operated a, a huge farm, a huge farm on which a number of sharecrop farmers lived. During the afternoon, the door was opened and a small black child uh, walked in, the daughter of a tenant, and took her place at the door. When the uncle asked her what she wants, she said, uh, her mother sent her to collect 50 cents from you. He, he, the uncle replied saying, I'll not do it. Now you run on home. She replied, yes, sir, but continued sitting there. The uncle went on, continued with his work, so busily engaged that he did not pay enough attention to the child to observe that she did not leave. When he looked up and saw her standing there, he yelled at her, I told you to go home. Now get on. The girl said, yes, sir, but continued to switch, sit there. The uncle dropped a sack of grain and he was about to pour into the that he was about to pour into the mill hopper, picked up a barrel stave and started towards the child with an expression on his face that indicated trouble. Darby held its breath. He, he was of the opinion that he was soon about to witness murder. And again, this was at a time when the relations between whites and blacks weren't the best. And certainly the legal system was in favor of one part of the society. And, and Mr. Darby's uncle knew that he was in in, in, at a, in a superior position, not just because he was older and stocky and more powerful, but also because of skin color. He knew that colored children were not supposed to defy white people in the part in that part of the country, said the author. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was, sta was standing, she quickly stepped forward with one step and said, my, my mother got, got to have that 50 cent. The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, then slowly laid the barrel stave on the floor, put his hand in his pocket, took out half a dollar, which is 50 cents, and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed towards the door, never taking her eyes off the man whom she had just conquered. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to the author in the old mill on the very spot where the uncle took his, as the author describes in his own words, whipping. Strangely too, I had devoted, the author said, he had devoted nearly a quarter of a century to study the power which enabled a child, especially a child at that particular position, socially and in terms of her age, to conquer a much larger and much uh, socially favorable, let's say, man. As we stood there in the musty old mill, says the author, Mr. Darby repeated the story of the usual conquest and finished by asking, what can you make of it? What strained power did the child use? The answer to this question will be found 
says the author, again, teasing us into reading more into the book. He says the answer to this question will be found in the principles of this book, which the child accidentally stumbled upon. And this is an important lesson from, um, from, from, from the author and from Darby. And Darby said, every time a prospect tried to bow out without buying, I saw that child standing there in the old mill, her big eyes glaring in defiance. And I said to myself, I've got to make the sale. The better position of all sales I've made were made after the person had said no. He recalled to his mistake in having stopped only three feet from gold and having the persistence of that little girl when she stood tall against his uncle. That experience was a blessing in, in disguise. It taught me, and I love these four words, keep on keeping on. This is a line you hear a lot of athletes say when you know push comes to shove. Keep on keeping on, no matter how hard the going may be. A lesson I need to learn before I could success in anything, could succeed rather in anything. In, in, answer to these, in answer to these questions, this book was written, says the author. The answer called for a description of a certain principles. But remember, as you read the answer, you may be sitting to question which you have caused to ponder over the stra strangeness of life, may be found in your own mind through some idea, plan, or purpose, which may spring into your mind as you read. One sound idea is all all that one needs to achieve success. Uh, this chapter does recount a few more stories, a story by uh, a story re retelling of Henry Ford, a story about um, um, a, a Chinese man in America, uh, a story about uh, a, a great quote from, from the poet Henley, which says, the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. But these largely touch upon the same questions of desire, of burning desire and the persistence that one needs in order to not just be successful, but to be wealthy as, again, the, the theme of the book and the theme of this podcast does denote. And recounting it might, might be a tad bit that might sort of push the episode a little extra, and I do not want to do that. Um, but I do want to leave you with, with, a, with, as the author did leave me, a taste of the next chapter. And this might be a little more appropriate in terms of how financially uh, purposeful this, this podcast is intended to be. He says, I want you to know that it conveys, he, he says about the next chapter, that I want you to know that it conveys factual information, which might easily change your entire financial destiny, as it has so definitely brought changes of stupendous proportions to two people described. One of, the, one of the people is a close personal friend for almost 25 years of the author, and the other is his own son. The close personal friend is, goes by the name of Jennings Randolph, who did serve as um, a congressman in the mid-1940s, or 1930s, rather. Um, and he was an attendant at... He was an attendant in the graduation class um, of, of Salem College, West Virginia, when uh, Napoleon Hill gave a commencement, uh, sorry, a valedictory speech, a commencement speech, or a guest speech, I'm not sure. But in response to that, um, Jennings Randolph did write a letter to Mr. Napoleon Hill, um, 
several years later when he was a sitting member of Congress. And I would like to read the letter or in full or at least in the most important parts in order to understand uh, what the next chapter will be. My service as a member of Congress have been giving me an insight into the problems of men and women. I'm writing to offer a suggestion which may become helpful to thousands of worthy people. With apologies, I must state that the suggestion if acted upon will mean several years of labor and responsibility for you, but I am enheartened to make the suggestion. In 1922, that is 15 years before the book was published, you delivered the commencement address at Salem College when I was a member of the graduating class. In that address, you planted in my mind an idea which has been responsible for the opportunity I now have to serve the people of my country and my state and will be responsible in very large measure for whatever success I may have in the future. The suggestion I have in my mind that you put into a book the sum and substance of the address you delivered and in that way give the people of the country and indeed the world an opportunity to profit by your many years of experience and association. I recall as though it were yesterday the marvelous description you gave of the method by which Henry Ford with but little schooling, without a dollar, with no influential friends, rose to great heights. Thousands of young people will finish their schooling this year. And within the next few years, every one of them will be seeking just such a message of practical encouragement as the one I received from you. They will want to know where to turn, what to do to get started in life. You can tell them because you have helped to solve the problems of so many people. If there is any possible way that you can afford to render so great a service, may I offer the suggestion that you include with every book one of your personal analysis charts. And again, this is something that we get to look forward to in the next episode and in the next chapter of the book. Personal analysis charts in order that the purchaser of the book may have the benefit of complete self-inventory, indicating as you indicated to me exactly what is standing in the way of success. Such a service provide, provided to thy readers of your book with a complete unbiased picture of their faults and their virtues which mean to them the difference between success and failure. Millions of people are now facing the problem of staging a comeback because of the depression. Again, this was written in uh, 1937. And I think the Great Depression happened in the late 1930s. You know the problem of those who face the necessity of beginning all over again, says Randolph. There are thousands of people in the country who would like to know how they can convert ideas to money, as indeed there are thousands of people in the country, in India today, um, if not millions of people who are desperate for money and they have several ideas. And not only do they have ideas, they have tools in order to manifest those ideas, whether that's a computer to a computer, a mobile phone, an internet connection. People who must start at scratch without finances and recoup their losses. If anyone can help them, you can. If you publish the book, I would like to own the first copy autographed by you. With best wishes, cordially yours, Jennings Randolph. With that, we come to the end of this episode, the second episode of Thinking Grow Rich. I, I hope you've learned something. It did seem like it was very sort of vague at times, uh, but a few important key takeaways from this was uh, there is a difference between desire and burning desire. And the person who whose desire burns the longest is often the most successful. Um, you are very close to success 
as uh, RU Darby's uncle was, but he decided to quit when he was three feet from gold. Persistence is important as we, uh, as we saw the immense bravery of the child when confronted with uh, danger. And it is, and we have something in incredible to look forward to in the next chapter, which I myself haven't read, but I'm looking forward to as I, as I just read the, the letter by Randolph to, um, to the author. That comes. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you if you liked it, please let me know. Um, and I hope to see you in the next episode. Till then, I'm out.